Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would send your spirit to be with us and with our pastor as he opens the word before us, that you would open our hearts to receive it, that you would give our pastor boldness to speak and clarity of mind and strength of heart. We ask these things in the name of your Holy Son. Amen. As you're taking your seat, will you turn with me once again to Mark's Gospel, beginning chapter 2 today. We'll be in Mark chapter 2. I wrote in the bulletin verses 1 through 15, but that was a typo on my part. It's actually 1 through 12 is where we'll be looking at today. Last week, we considered here at the, at the, last, the latter half of chapter 1, we saw the, the, the presence of a divine healer, the healer of men. That was the title of last week's sermon, Behold, the Healer of Man. And we considered his power. We're going to look more closely at, at a very specific aspect of his power today. We saw his power as he taught with authority, as he cleansed uh, people from unclean spirits, as he healed men and women of various afflictions. Today we're going to look at a particular power that's on display. As Mark has been zealous to show us from the very first verse of his gospel that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. He is truly God, truly man. And the power to forgive sins is shown here as the pinnacle of the power that he has displayed up into this very point. Jesus is not merely a mighty teacher. He's not merely a moral guide. He is not merely a healer of bodies. He is truly God. And in Mark 2, we see the greatest demonstration of his power thus far, the forgiveness of sins. Now, we're going to look, as we look at chapter 2, there's a gap in time between chapter 1 and chapter 2. How long is this gap? We don't know. But Mark tells us, notice the language that he's going to use, and I'll read the text in a minute. It was after some days. Now you'll recall that at the end of chapter 1, Jesus has to leave the region where he had been preaching, and we're told that he could no longer minister openly because of the crowds. Now that's going to factor prominently into the narrative that we have today. The 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 cause of the events that we see today are actually a consequence of one man's sin. And in God's good providence, and his kind providence, he actually uses the sin and folly of men to accomplish his own purposes, his own ends. Mark tells us that the work of Christ had been hindered. and That's an important detail because it does factor into the narrative that we're going to read. So because of that fact, I want to back up And I'm going to read beginning in verse 40 of chapter 1, and I'm going to read down through verse 12. The title of today's sermon is The Power to Forgive Sins. And I want to look at this under three headings just to help us organize our thoughts on this. First, we have a ministry hindrance. I mean, what presents us, this is is probably one of the, Jesus did a lot of miracles recorded in in all four Gospels. And this is perhaps one of the most memorable ones. All the way from the earliest Sunday school kinds of lessons, this is a very memorable one. For a couple of reasons. Number one, it's dramatic. I mean, how many times does a man get lowered down through the roof of a house to be healed? But also theologically, it's very significant because it's, it's, it's here that Jesus first declares 
his ability to forgive sin. So it's a significant event. But, we, but it's, the whole thing happens in the context of a hindrance to ministry. We need to understand why there was a hindrance to begin with. But secondly, what's presented here is a theological dilemma. It's ironic how it comes to the surface, and we'll look at that in the text, but there's a theological dilemma that we have to wrestle with. And then there's a divine solution. So that's, that's the organization of the text. A ministry hindrance, a theological dilemma, and a divine solution. So here, the Word of God, as I read, beginning at verse 40 of chapter 1, and I'll read down to verse 12 of chapter 2. This is the Word of God. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean, moved with pity. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean, and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Amen. Notice in the first place this ministry hindrance. If we look carefully at the language that we see in verse 1 of chapter 2, Mark gives us two facts. He says, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, some time has elapsed. Why? Because he couldn't come back. The, 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 the area was too hot, so to speak. There was too much in terms of crowds, and he could not effectively minister. And even when he comes back into Capernaum, the second thing that Mark tells us is that word still got out, and it was reported that he was at home. It was reported that he was at home. Remember that prior to healing of a man with the, with the part of this, we saw in chapter 1 that Jesus had openly healed a man in the synagogue. 
But no longer could Jesus minister in such a public place. Now he was confined, in a sense, to a private home. And this was no longer possible to meet openly in a synagogue. Why? Because of the leper's disobedience. The leper was disobedient to Christ. In his genuine zeal and joy, the leper forgot about obedience. Now, we can understand. We can be sympathetic to the leper. He has just been healed from a disease that was viewed as uncurable. For the first time in who knows how long, he's able to have human contact. And in his zeal, in his emotional outburst, he goes and disobeys two direct commands of Christ. Notice, back in chapter 1, Jesus, verse 43, uses this language. Jesus sternly charged him. That's strong language. He sternly charged him, and he charged him two things. Tell no one. Now, that's a mysterious command. And, and, and there is something we'll see as it unfolds in Mark's gospel, this, this idea of a messianic secret. Jesus' response at this point, early in his ministry, is, shh, it is not yet time to announce who I am and what I've come to do fully. There is a time for that. God has appointed such a time, but that is not today. But the leper thought he was wiser than Jesus. The second command he gives him, he says, go and submit to the ordinance of God. See, God had given very clear commands. For the sake of time, we won't turn there, but you can turn and look into Leviticus. There were very clear procedures, clear commands that were given to lepers who had been healed. You go to the priest, you make an offering, and the priest then, in a sense, certifies your cleanness and grants you, grants you again access to the community of faith. So this was not something Jesus was doing to harm him. He's just healed him. And Jesus wants him further healed and restored into the whole community of faith. And to have that public declaration that this man was clean, and he neglected those ordinances. And as a consequence of his neglect of the commands of Christ, now the work of ministry is actually hindered. Rather than submitting himself to what God had previously commanded and about which Jesus had sternly charged him to obey, he went out and spoke freely in such a way that now the gospel is actually hindered. And often we don't think about that, do we? We're surrounded, we're immersed in a sense in an evangelical culture that says you ought to be able to say anything you want whenever you want. How dare you tell me I can't speak? And then when we, we add that kind of enlightenment idealism and we sprinkle it with a little bit of Jesus verses, and we say, see, I especially have a right to talk about Jesus anywhere. But when the Bible, there are times the Bible tells us not to speak, and we have an obligation to listen to that. There's a, a Presbyterian pastor in the 19th century who made this observation, Melanchthon Jacobus. For those expecting moms, there's a potential name, Melanchthon Jacobus. Listen to what he says. This is insightful. We are taught to signify our gratitude to God by careful obedience rather than blind and headlong zeal. The man was to go and report himself at Jerusalem according to the command even before he should report the matter to others. Some have a religion which obeys natural impulses rather than divine commands. Some people hope they are religious without attending to the appointed ordinances of God's house. Some think it of little account 
to join the church. But God has appointed his ordinance as a public testimony, most important to be made at once. How many hinder his work by neglecting the public ordinances? How many from ill-timed zeal prevent much good? We have, a, we have a hindrance here caused by a man's disobedience. And according to Mark, it's the leper's disobedience has, that has the immediate effect that Jesus can no longer minister in an open place like the synagogue. He could no longer openly teach and preach and minister to those who needed his, to hear him and to be touched by him. And one of the saddest aspects of, of pastoral ministry, in fact, church life in general, is seeing dear families make shipwreck of themselves because of a lack of obedience and diligence to obey the ordinary means of grace, to submit themselves to those ordinances that Christ has commanded of them. I couldn't even begin to count how many I have seen, personally witnessed, who have fallen away into either sin or gone off into a doctrinal wilderness or into family conflicts and strife. And often it's because their emotions undermined their obedience. They were ruled by their passions rather than by the word of God. And by by a pretended sense of zeal, they missed the benefit that Christ intended for them. They are convinced themselves in many cases that that ordinary obedience to ordinary means wasn't necessary in their case, or that they didn't need that. They possessed true faith, but it was not not marked by a true diligence to obey the command of Christ to be one with his body. And sadly, sometimes people have mistakenly believed that their disobedience is of either a small matter or that it only affects them. But as we see, here's a case study with this leper that his disobedience had a profound effect not only on himself, but upon others no longer able to minister openly in the synagogue, Jesus is forced to now minister in a private home in which there's simply not sufficient space to minister to those who needed to hear him, who needed to be touched by him. Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. Thankfully, our God is good, and all that he does is good. All that he, he does all that he pleases, and his kind providence makes use even of our folly even of our sin, to accomplish his divine will. But So now, because there's simply no space in the house, here are four desperate friends who bring a fourth man, their friend, to be healed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the ESV kind of softens the language a little bit. Verse 4 tells us, When they could not get near him because of the crowd... It says they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed. And I've always had in my mind this idea, of, well, it's kind of a, probably a thatched roof, and they pulled back some palm leaves and made a... This wasn't the way it was. The houses in this particular region in this day would have been flat-topped roofs, built by thatch, but then layered with layer and layer and layer of thick mud that would have hardened over, creating a solid roof. This was no small construction project to dig through this. And so, I mean, and Mark doesn't tell us this, but it's not hard to, to imagine what was it like to be one of the few inside the house. This would have been a room, probably based on archaeological discoveries, the, the room would have been no longer, no bigger than maybe 15 feet by 15 feet. The rooms were not large. 
So a small place, a lot of people crammed in, and you can only imagine the cacophony above you as these men, the, literally the, the Greek words say he, they dug into the roof. They dug through it and created an opening. So they're doing substantial damage to this home. But again, in God's providence, this was an opportunity to demonstrate not only the veracity, but the strength of their faith. In God's good pleasure, he uses the circumstances of an overcrowded house that was such because Jesus could not minister in a public, larger place as an opportunity for true faith to be demonstrated. And Jesus takes note of this true faith. And he, and he responds very tenderly, very gently. He uses filial language. He says, my son or, or my child, your sins are forgiven you. But the kindness and mercy of Jesus to announce publicly uh, to this man in front of many witnesses that his sins were forgiven ends up leading to a theological dilemma. There's a theological dilemma. Look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there. You know, see, the scribes always have the best seats. So they weren't outside. They had the best seats. And the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, ironically, there is an irony here. It's actually the presence of the scribes which brings to light a theological dilemma. And it's a significant dilemma. Behind their inward grumblings was a nugget of truth. But they were, as we find in the, as the narrative proceeds, they're not really interested in truth. They're interested in promoting their own self-righteousness. But there is a question here. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, that's a true question. It's a real question. Now, they don't actually pose it in that way, not humbly, not honestly. They make an accusation in their heart. We'll get to that in a moment. But the Word of God clearly, it repeatedly teaches that their internal question was rooted on a measure of truth, at least on the surface. It's abundantly clear throughout the Scriptures that it is God alone who can forgive sin. Listen to Moses. Moses prays, this is recorded in Numbers 14, Moses prays, pardon them, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Just as you also have forgiven this people from Egypt even till now. So Yahweh said, I have pardoned them according to your word, but indeed as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of Yahweh. Moses asserts, it is you, God, who forgives sins. And Yahweh says, you're right. That's true. I do forgive sin, and I have pardoned them. In Isaiah chapter 44, here's, this is just a, a, basically giving you the testimony of two or three witnesses. We could go to dozens of Scripture passages. But even when Israel had sinned against God, even after the exile, God yet forgave them according to his promise. Listen to Isaiah 44. Verse 22, I have wiped out your transgressions 
like a thick cloud and your sins like a cloud. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. What has Yahweh done? He has forgiven their sin. And then once again in Micah, even through the prophet Micah, God declares the uniqueness of his prerogative, of his authority to forgive. Even among the so-called gods of their neighbors, no God could forgive sins except Yahweh. Who is a God like you who forgives iniquity and passes over the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold fast to his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and loving kindness to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. Who is a God like you to forgive sin? But the problem with the scribes, and and Jesus was able to discern their wicked hearts, the problem with the scribes is they didn't speak up with an honest question, did they? No, they grumbled within their hearts. They didn't raise an honest question about the doctrine of forgiveness, but according to their own stubborn pride, they grumbled and they murmured within themselves. Look how the Holy Spirit through Mark records this in verse 7. I'm sorry, verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves. See, Jesus, according to his divinity, according to his divine nature, knew the thoughts of their hearts. Now, you and I don't know the thoughts of one another's hearts, do we? That's probably a good thing, isn't it? How many marriages, how many relationships have been spared because we don't know the thoughts and intentions? We pretend that we do sometimes, don't we? But we don't. But Jesus did. And listen, he calls them out. He says, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier? to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk. And Jesus is not asking them, which syllables are easiest to form on your tongue, this phrase or that phrase? He's saying, which is a demonstration of authority that you will actually acknowledge? See, the problem here is that the scribes were grumbling in themselves, and they immediately jumped to an accusation of blasphemy. They did not raise an honest question about forgiveness. They didn't ask Jesus about that, and he calls them out. They immediately assume that he's blaspheming God. Now, what should they, what should they have done? A humble heart would have said, Rabbi, the Scriptures tell us, the Scriptures are plain that no one can forgive sin except God. The Scriptures also tell us that there is a Messiah coming. There is one that God will send one day who will forgive the sins of his people. Are you that one? Are you the one we've been waiting on? See, they don't ask that, do they? They immediately assume in their hearts they know what's the truth, proving they really weren't interested in truth. They were interested in indulging their own pride. Now, remember old Simeon? He's recorded for us in Luke chapter 2 when Jesus' parents, according to the law, Mary and Joseph, are bringing him into the temple to present him as the firstborn to God. And old Simeon, old but ministering faithfully day by day in the temple, 
And Simeon says, as, he's, as he holds the baby in his hand, as he holds baby Jesus in his hand, he says, Now, Master, you are releasing your slave in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people, Israel. See, the scribes were the ones who were supposed to be teachers in Israel. They were the ones of all people supposed to know the word of God the best. Here's old Simeon who said, I've been waiting to see. And the Holy Spirit had told Simeon, if you go back and read the narrative, you will not die until you see the salvation of Israel. You will see the one that God had prophesied, that he had foretold would come and deliver them from their sins. The scribes knew that. They knew the word at least as well as Simeon did. But in their pride, in their stubbornness, they didn't ask that. And I'll pose a a scenario to you again. How much damage is done in families, in marriages, among friends, among churches, when men and women grumble within their own hearts and begin to accuse their brothers in their minds rather than raising honest questions, humble questions. Or maybe they even accuse God himself of some sin, of some injustice. Rather than raising an honest question, men and women think the worst in their hearts and they allow suspicion and discontent to grow within them. And then that leads to resentment and anger and bitterness and on and on and on. I mean, think about how this happens with husbands and wives. If you've been married more than probably a week, you know this. Or you assume, I know what you're thinking. And often we don't assume well. You know, it's an interesting thing. The human brain is an interesting thing. We, we can't stand gaps in data, right? And you've seen the exercises, right, where there's a printed page of words except letters are missing from the words, and yet your brain immediately fills them in and you just read them. And it's like, it's like nothing's missing. And we think we can do that with other human beings with the same kind of accuracy, don't we? We assume that we, I know what you're thinking, I can fill in the gaps. And especially sometimes the longer you've been married, the longer you know someone, you start to complete each other's sentences and you, you kind of know You feel like, I know what they're thinking, until you don't. How much harm has been done between a brother and a sister when some offense has happened or something has been said, and you think, I know why they did that. And my brain begins to fill in the gaps, except that I'm wrong. How many times have, have breaches taken place between a parent and a child Because a parent wrongly assumed, I know why my child did this. I know what they're thinking. Or a child has said, I know what my parents are doing, and they're they're against me, or they're doing this or that. Between pastors and church members. I mean, I grieve. I grieve my own sin, thinking the worst of church members at times. Thinking, oh, I know why they're doing this. And I don't know. And I ought to ask. And church members have been guilty of doing the same. See, the matter begins with a legitimate question. Sometimes there are legitimate questions that come up in our relationships. Something is said or something is done, and we ought to have a hmm, that's that's curious. Why is this that way? Or why did you do such and such a thing? But we don't ask. Maybe we don't accuse a brother of blasphemy, but we might accuse of something else. And see, the scribes' pride and hardness of heart prevents them from seeking truth. And and it's easy enough, and and there's a sense in which Mark intends for us to see the scribes as a villain throughout the gospel. But we automatically put ourselves in the camp of the good guys, don't we? 
you watch a movie, you watch an old western, and there's the black hats and the white hats, and you automatically identify with the white hats, usually. And see, we want to identify with the white hats and fail to recognize. There's some scribe in us, too. Their thoughts and actions betrayed the fact that they really were not interested in the soundness of doctrine. They weren't interested in truth. They were not generally promoting the name and place of God. They were committed to their own pride. They missed the true glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, in this crowded house. They missed his divinity. They missed the fact that he was the promised one because of their hardness. Now, a bit later in the gospel narratives, we, we have an event that serves as, as, a, as a contrasting illustration of just this very thing. Here in Mark 2, the scribes grumble in their hearts rather than asking an honest, humble, direct question. But do you remember the event that happens when John the Baptist is imprisoned? Matthew records for us in chapter 11 what had happened. John's in prison. Herod has imprisoned him. And, and our brother, in a moment of weak faith, begins to doubt. Do you remember what happened? He sends some disciples to Jesus and says... Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? Now, that's a humble, honest question. Now, it's a question born out of weak faith, but it's an honest question. And the scriptures don't condemn this. In fact, Jesus goes on to to issue some of the most superlative language for John. He says, I'll tell you, among those born of women, no one's greater than this man, immediately after he asked this question. Do you remember what Jesus answered him? He doesn't give him a yes or no question. He sends the disciples back and says, you go and tell John. Remember what he said? Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. John, there's your answer. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we wait for another? Well, John, search the scriptures. The blind are receiving the sight, the lepers are being cleansed, the lame are walking, the poor have good news preached to them. What's that a sign of according to the scriptures, John? Messiah has come. It could be nothing else. There's no other explanation for that. So Jesus didn't need to give another answer. John knew his Bible. And the scribes should have too. I mean, here they are watching this dramatic scene right before them. A man coming down on a stretcher. And he gets up and walks. They've no doubt heard the reports of the leper being healed because the leper, remember, couldn't keep his mouth shut. They've heard the reports of demons being cast out. What other explanation is this than that the Son of God is before them and they would not hear? In fact, they accuse him of blasphemy. You hear the irony? It was actually the blasphemers that were accusing Jesus of blasphemy. From the very first verse, as I said earlier, in Mark's gospel, he makes it his aim to present Jesus as the Son of God, truly God. The one that that God had promised who would take away the sins of his people. Now, with this theological dilemma addressed by Jesus, he addresses this. 
in a similar way. If you think about it, it's a similar way to how he answered John. Jesus asked, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say, take up your bed and walk. But just so you know that the Son of Man does in fact have authority on earth to forgive sins, and he looks at the man and says, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And in front of all of those witnesses, that's exactly what happens. Jesus puts his own word given through the prophets, given through the law, puts it before them and says, this is your answer. And by the way, he uses the title Son of Man, which was a direct reference to the book of Daniel, which spoke of nothing other than the Almighty God. So this theological dilemma is addressed, and now we have this divine solution. One of the things that we, we know from the greater light that we have in the New Testament is that the Old Covenant had certain weaknesses. And one of those weaknesses was that under the Old Covenant, sin could not be removed. It could be atoned for, it could be covered but the sacrifices had to be offered repeatedly, time after time after time. Now, the sacrifices were merely symbolic. It was not actually, the writer of Hebrews tells us, it was not actually the blood of bulls and goats that did anything. It was only the virtue of God's mercy that did anything. But those were signs, they were symbols. The writer of Hebrews calls them shadows of the things that would come. And they had to be repeated again and again and again. And that's why in Hebrews 10... Verse 11, the apostle said, And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, the sacrificial system reminded the people of God, your sin is still here. You need another sacrifice tomorrow to cover what you've done today. And in order to be right by God, you, with God, you've got to believe by faith that God will use these means. But on the authority of God's word, they can never take away sins. But when Christ offered himself up as a once-for-all sacrifice, it, it was not a mere symbol anymore. This was no longer a type. This was no longer a shadow of something else to come. It was not a signpost pointing us to something future or something greater no, the true Lamb of God, truly man, truly God, had come with the expressed purpose of taking away sin. The Old Covenant could not take away sin. Jesus comes for the purpose of taking away sin. And now, here in Mark 2, we, we see the, the, the record of Jesus declaring divine authority to accomplish what he had been sent by his Father to do. Jesus says... I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. I mean, that's his self-reported mission statement. I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. And, and this is, by the way, the, the testimony the Apostle Paul gives. As we read through the pastoral epistles in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul gives this testimony about himself that Jesus, in fact, had come and taken away not just sins in general, but his sin. Listen to, to Paul. I'm a grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he regarded me faithful, putting me into service, even though 
I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. I want to pause for just a moment. Notice here what Paul's saying. There was gospel hope for the scribes too. Paul said, I was a blasphemer. I was a violent persecutor. Paul goes on, yet I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy saying and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chiefest or foremost. Yet for this reason I was shown mercy so that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. And in their pride, the scribes missed it. And Paul testifies that at once, at one point, he missed it. So the question then becomes, comes to us, just comes just flying out of the pages to us. Do you know this Jesus who has the power to forgive sin? Do you know him? Do you know this power? We can marvel in our, in our sanctified imaginations, as we think about him casting out demons, as we think about seeing the, the dirt kind of raining down as these men dig a hole in the roof and lower a man down, and Jesus says, get up and walk, and he takes up his bed and walks. And unlike Benny Hinn or those other frauds, this was not, this was not a scam. This was not a parlor trick. This man truly could not walk. And he got up on his own power with a bed tucked under his arm and he walked out. But this paralytic man, man knew and his friends knew that his problem was far greater than the fact that he couldn't walk. The ailment that affected him was far deeper than his body. He was alienated from God, not because of his legs, but because of his sin. He needed to be healed from a far deeper and greater problem, the sin which ensnared him. He was a sinner separated from God, wholly unable to heal himself. And so you can think about the, the compare and contrast. Here there was a leper in the previous chapter where everyone, even from a distance, could tell this man is unclean. This man couldn't even go into a, a, a social setting because of his uncleanness. Well, here's another man upon whom his friends took pity, but he was in no less desperate shape than the leper. And we talked last week that, that leprosy was often um, a type for sin. And there are a lot of commonalities that we see between the disease of leprosy and the spiritual condition of sin. But here is a sinner separated from God, wholly unable to heal himself. Forgiveness was available to him. If only he would believe. What greater words could ever be spoken to a human being than those words that Jesus spoke? Son, your sins are forgiven. So we can lose the marvel at that, can't we? And we have more scribe in us than we want to admit sometimes. 
And we can forget the wonder and the glory and the simplicity of the gospel. Your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk. Get up and walk before me in newness of life. Obey my commands. He then declares to the scribes and, and probably more importantly to everyone else there, just so you know, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. But he healed his worst condition first. He declared him clean, declared him forgiven of sin, and then said, just as a proof, get up and walk. And he did. I was reminded of that scene in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian finally stands before the cross. And he'd gone up this way, Bunyan writes, therefore did burdened Christian run but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhere ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued it to tumble till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in. And I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Now, as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him with peace to thee. To thee. And so the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. By the way, Bunyan references here, Mark chapter 2 and verse 5. The second stripped him of his rags and clothed him with the change of raiment. The third also set a mark on his forehead and gave him a roll with a seal upon it, which he bade him look on as he ran, and he should give it in at the celestial gate. So they went on their way. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went away singing. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Saints, if you are in Christ, your burden's gone. Your sins are forgiven. Now get up and walk is the command of our Savior. Get up and follow me. The whole crowd on the house that day witnessed this man as he no doubt leapt for joy. What's that scene? We're given a very brief account. But what must that have been like as he kind of elbowed his way out the door? With joy in his heart, and a spring in his step, no doubt. Because it was not only his legs that was healed, that were healed, but his soul, sick with sin, had been healed. Has your soul been healed? 
Do you know the power of the forgiveness of sins? Do you know the power of the one who forgives sins? On the authority of God's word, you, if you don't, you can know that today. May today be the day of your forgiveness. This is Jesus speaking in John 6. He says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. May we know the power of the one who forgives sins. And may he grant us the grace to get up and to walk out of here in obedience to him. Amen. Let's pray. God, our Father, we are so thankful that we have received mercy. Not because we were deserving of it, but because our Lord Jesus has borne our sorrows, who's taken upon his own body our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He became a curse. Father, we are grateful for your eternal wisdom displayed and worked out in our earthly realm so that we can be transferred out of this earthly realm, out of this kingdom of darkness, and transferred into the kingdom of your own Son. I pray for those in our midst. I pray for our own children that have not yet believed this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that today would be a day of belief, of faith. Holy Spirit, will you open eyes, unstop ears, and grant that those who have walked with Christ for some time now, that our, our joy and our forgiveness would be renewed that we would seek to walk before you humbly in faith, in ongoing repentance, believing that our sins have been forgiven and out of this overwhelming gratitude that we seek daily to die to ourselves and live for him. Amen.